Thank you, Dean. God always wins. That's been a theme we've been seeing throughout the book of Daniel. So I'm excited to be back with you again. Wanted to thank Dave Tate for preaching, for filling in last week, our friend from Temple Bible Church, our sister church over in Temple. He did a great job. I was able to see the recording, and uh, it was encouraging and faithful to Jesus and to the Word, and I think it was encouraging to y'all as I've heard a lot of good feedback. So thank you to Dave. We're going to finish up the book of Daniel now. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Daniel chapter 11 and 12. We're going to uh, push together chapter 11 and 12. It's kind of the, the ending of the whole book. Really, 10, 11, and 12 are the ending, but we already did a little bit on 10, and now we'll wrap up with 11 and 12. The series we've been calling What to Do When the World Falls Apart. What to do when the world falls apart. For many different reasons, health with the pandemic, uh, racial unrest, political tensions in our countries, just all kinds of different reasons, we've been feeling uneasy. We've been feeling uh, concerned, worrying, a lot of different ways you can describe that. We talked when we started this series that depression during the pandemic has risen to about four times the normal reported uh, amount of people struggling with depression. And so we're looking back in time at a time when God's people were struggling and we're saying they learned to walk by faith, to trust that God wins, that God is in control and we can also learn to walk by faith, even in strange and difficult times. So this final week, we're gonna look at Daniel chapter 11 and 12 and we're titling it Trust in God's Plan. Trust God's Plan. A great question, uh, several weeks ago, actually, from Lizzie Keasley over the different visions of the end times that we see in the book of Daniel. And I had to write this down because it's, it's been repeated so many times. We had t- chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 11 all seem to be repeating the same prophecy. What they're all doing in different formats with different kinds of vision, with different artistry, some more generalized and some more specific, they're all saying... Kingdoms will rise, and kingdoms will fall, and in the end, God wins. And these predictions, these prophecies span hundreds of years. And what these things are doing, I believe now, as we come to the end, I I think I finally understand. She asked me several weeks ago, why, why would they keep doing the same predictions over and over again, right? Like, why would we keep getting the same vision? Well, for one, I think it was specific to the people of God in this time. It was saying, this is what's gonna happen in your future, right? And these prophecies generally say, this is what's going to happen. And then we've got this this big blip in the prophecies, right, that we saw in chapters uh, seven and eight about the Messiah coming. We've got these visions of a Messiah coming. Chapter nine talked about that a little more, and that's really exciting. But they're showing us in general that we're going to go through hard stuff, And if you read the New Testament, the same message is repeated multiple times. As followers of Jesus, we're going to go through suffering. We're going to go through difficulty. And when God's game plan and the future that's going to take place is drilled into us enough times, then we're not going to be caught off guard. If any of you played sports, this is what your coaches would do to you to prepare you for a game. They would often scout out. We played football. They would scout the other team and say, this team plays this kind of offense. I played on defense when I played high school football. So they'd say, they're going to run this kind of play. When this you know, blocker comes at you from this side, you jam him back in the hole, and then you look for the runner up the middle. You know, and you had these things that you would drill again and again. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what's going to happen. It was really helpful for us to know that there was a game plan. 
Because when you were sweating, and when you were out of breath, and when you were bleeding, and when you were a skinny guy getting crushed by 300-pound linemen, you, you needed some kind of plan to hang on to. And so the people of God are reminded that God is sovereign, that God is in charge. And so Daniel has reviewed this multiple times, and he's going to review it in such detail in chapter 11 that we're not going to have time to discuss it all today. The details are so strong and so overwhelming that this, chapter 11, is the number one reason that skeptics don't believe that Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C. They believe it was written in the 2nd century B.C. when this terrible leader, Antiochus Epiphanes, rose up because they say the details are too specific. And the skeptic says, of course we know that God can't predict the future because that sort of thing can't happen. So skeptics take this and say it, it can't be predictive because we know predictions don't take place, right? And it's, it's so clear. It's so clear that you only have one of two options. Either God is in charge of the universe and he can predict the future, or it's not a prediction. And I would love to talk to you about all the historic and kind of skeptical reasons to believe it is really prediction. There are, there are things in the text and in the history and in the archaeology that actually make it very doubtful that this was written after the fact. It just doesn't add up with the other history that we have. So big idea is that we are to trust God's plan, that he's saying, this is what's happening, so be faithful. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. When you're getting pounded, when you're bleeding, when you're suffering, trust that God is in control. My coaches prepared me so that when difficulty came, I could stick to the plan even more so, we should stick to the plan of the God of the universe, who knows perfectly what the future holds. So let's read what we're going to do because it's such a long section. We're going to read chapter 11, a few verses, and then read chapter 12, a few verses, kind of bookending our time in the text. Starting in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him, and now I will show you the truth. So this is the heavenly messenger again talking to Daniel. Now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with the great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So again, just that section, which is not in in a a lot of detail, already coincides perfectly with the history that takes place. The the rise and fall of the Persian kingdoms and empires, and then the rise of Alexander the Great, and then Alexander the Great's empire being broken into these different pieces. You got the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, and you got this kind of disintegration of the Greek empire before the Roman empire fully rises up later on. So again, incredible prophecy of things that are to come. And what would this do for the people of God who are in the middle of all these empires, who are being trampled as one empire comes through and another comes through? It's going to come through from the north and then the south and then the east and then the west. They're just going to get run over, over and over again over the next hundreds of years. They're going to say, okay, God's got this. God was not surprised by any of this. This doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. And that's one of the things that God's word can do for you and for me, we hold on to God's word when suffering and difficulty comes. We, we remember that God is still in control. So let's skip down now to chapter 12 and look at how this story ends. 
in chapter 12, verse 1, at that time shall arise Michael, this is the great angel prince, the great prince who is charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, every one whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel, here at the end of his book, has one of the most explicit and clear predictions of the bodily resurrection, the fact that those of us that that trust in Jesus look forward to rising from the dead, defeating sin and death. That's our hope. And here's Daniel, hundreds, thousands of years ago, predicting that this is how it's all going to end. Let me pray for us and ask that God would help us again as we look at his word. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would meet us. We believe this is a supernatural event. We believe that the forces of evil and the spiritual realms do not desire this to take place. We pray that your spirit would strengthen us, that you would open our ears, that you would help us to hear you, to submit to your word, and to give glory to you and your son. We pray, Father, that we would be obeyers of your word. We pray, Father, that we would be listeners. God, help us to see your goodness and your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the big idea is that we would trust God's plan. Trust God's plan. And again, I want to encourage you to go back and and study these. I mean, really just, you could Wikipedia, you could read any Bible commentary on the book of Daniel. It would take about three or four hours to go verse by verse and say, here's this prediction in Daniel chapter 11. Here's how it came true in this kingdom. Here's this prediction. Here's how it came true. And of course, we've got all kinds of ancient historians that corroborate the evidence that say, yeah, this happened right? And when biblical scholars look back at the text, they say it it doesn't make sense that it was written after the fact because of how well circulated the book of Daniel was and how they seem to be talking about things that only someone living in the 6th century BC could have known and talked about. There's just all kinds of reasons to say this was a prediction and these predictions came true. So we should trust God's plan. God is in control. God is in charge. And as we work through the text, I see three major movements. Again, we're, we're moving through a lot of text here, but, but three big movements of the text. One is we should trust that suffering has boundaries. We should trust that suffering has boundaries. Number two, we should trust that resurrection is coming. Resurrection is coming. That's our great hope. And then number three, we should trust that your Little life matters. Trust that your little life matters. My little life matters. God's actually working through us. So this, the sweep of history is so big and so overwhelming. That encourages us that, man, God's in control. Kingdoms rise and fall. And we trust that that suffering has boundaries. God's in charge, right? But in the end, he finishes with, man, your little life matters. You have, you have a role to play. There's a danger of us looking at these great sweeps of hundreds and thousands of years of history and thinking, well, I don't really matter. You know, God is sovereign, so it doesn't matter what I do. Remember what happened when Daniel studied prophecy. When Daniel himself studied the prophecies of his other friend, Jeremiah, the prophet that had stayed in Israel, when he studied Jeremiah's prophecies, 
and he saw them being fulfilled and he was reassured of God's sovereignty, what did that do? That drove Daniel to fast and pray. It didn't drive Daniel back to say, well, it doesn't matter what I do. No, it drove him into the spiritual disciplines. It drove him towards God. And that's what these prophecies should do for us as well. So the first big idea is we should trust that suffering has boundaries. Suffering has boundaries. And again, these predictions are so strong and clear that the skeptics just have a hard time with it. Um, And it brings up a question sometimes that Christians struggle with, um, and that is this. Does the meticulous, predictive sovereignty of God, right, his ability to predict the future, does that mean that God meticulously controls every detail, or does that mean that God has meticulous foreknowledge of what will happen, and he's not controlling every detail? Uh, Just to be honest, I lean towards the Bible pushing that God somehow meticulously controls history, and yet we still have free agency. We're still responsible beings. So I lean towards that side, but I just want to throw that out there and say, Christians disagree on this because it's hard to understand. It blows our mind. It's hard to figure out, like, okay, is God really in control of, like, every little thing, or does he just kind of know everything that's going to happen? How does that work out? Christians side up on different sides, but either side or any of the 10 middle positions you might take, we all come back to trusting that God's in control, Right? Either way, that's our hope. Our, our hope is that God wins, that God is in charge. We've kept, continued to come back to this phrase, sovereignty. God reigns. He's sovereign. He's the king. That's our hope, no matter how you work out the details. Um, and so that's when I want to push us to trusting that suffering has boundaries. Evil does not win. Suffering is in a box controlled by God, and he's not going to allow it to go any farther. So we get all these details in chapter 11, and I'm going to jump in now to verse 31. Verse 31 is talking about this evil leader we've talked about before. We, We hit it a few weeks ago, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was this evil leader that was vengeful, that did terrible things. Verse 31 says this, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So this is the abomination of desolation talked about many times in Daniel, also talked about by Jesus. It's a pattern of the temple being desecrated, of something offensive happening. With Antiochus Epiphanes specifically, he set up an altar to Zeus and slaughtered pigs. He did incredibly offensive things to say, your God's not in charge, but I'm in charge. And he did that on purpose. Similar things happened in the destruction of the temple through Titus, the Roman general. And then we believe similar things. We believe Jesus is predicting similar things will happen in the future. Here we have this happening clearly in the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Do you see that there are two sides there? He's going to seduce some. Some are going to be like, all right, he's in charge. I'm, on, I'm, going to, I'm going to follow him. I don't care about faithfulness to God. Others are going to stand firm, which is a great term we're going to come back to later. Verse 33, and the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. Again, this is prediction of suffering. He's saying God's people are going to get hurt. Jesus said again and again, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus promises us trouble, and Daniel here is getting this vision where God's people in the Old Testament are also promised 
trouble. Verse 34, when they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. Now, there's a confusing sort of change that starts to take place in the end of Daniel chapter 11. And again, this is something that a lot of different scholars carve up in different ways, but there seems to be an end to talking about the near future of Antiochus Epiphanes and a transition to a farther ahead future. We often talk about that character as the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness from 1 Thessalonians. The idea in biblical prophecy is that there are these patterns that repeat, right? The clearest way to talk about this pattern is you and I have taken part in the pattern with Adam and Eve of believing the lies of the ancient serpent, the dragon, the monster. And so what we've seen is as humans believe in the lies of the monsters, we become like monsters. We sin. We hurt each other. And as we buy into that, leaders among us rise up who then become great monsters and powerful monsters who don't just hurt a few people in our family or in our workplace. We hurt hundreds of people, thousands of people. That pattern plays out again and again. God says, yes, kingdoms of men will rise up. These monsters will seem to be taking control of the world, but ultimately they will be defeated. Again, the the big idea is trust that there are boundaries God has placed around our suffering. We live in a world of suffering where there is this cosmic battle between good and evil, and suffering will take place, but this suffering has boundaries. Verse 35, some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So this is the transition where it's starting to get fuzzy. And he's like, this isn't really the end yet, right? Remember Jesus talking about this stuff to his disciples when Jesus talks about, yeah, the the temple's gonna be destroyed. and, And when you see this happening, you better run, but then that's not really the end yet. And if somebody says, I've come back, I haven't really come back yet. This is gonna be obvious when I come back. Stay ready for me to come back, but I haven't come back yet. There's this kind of confusion of certain things are going to happen soon, but there's this ultimate end that we look forward to where Jesus comes back and makes all things right. That's that future resurrection we're looking forward to. And in the prophecies of Jesus, it's fuzzy. Christians kind of are like, where, where does that stop and where does it end? You know, where does 70 AD stop and where does like the year 3000 start? We're, we're not sure. The way that a lot of theologians call, about, call this is the, the telescoping nature of prophecy. So any of you ever used a telescope? Telescope can kind of like fold up. It's like this long tube that collapses on itself, but then when you pick it up and you want to use it, you can stretch it out. And so a lot of theologians talk about this. When you look at prophecy, the prophet is looking ahead, and it kind of looks like one, you know, one blob of future events. And then when you're in those future events, you realize, oh, some of that blob is still, still ahead. And so this is why prophecy is confusing sometimes for us. So we've got this idea that some are going to stumble, some are going to be refined, I want to point out in the text here, it says some made white. Uh, People have overplayed this big time in racial history in our country right here. White doesn't talk, it's not talking about skin at all. So people with brown skin or peach skin can be made figuratively white, right? And the idea is figuratively talking about the bleaching of linen cloth or the cleaning of a dish, right? It's the idea of being purified. And so here he's saying people will be morally pure. People will be purified. And then verse 36, most think this is now beginning to talk about the future Antichrist. 
And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. And so there's this near, farther, farther out, farther out predictions of things that are gonna come. And all these predictions are saying, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, God has overcome the world. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We trust that suffering has boundaries. It's in a lane, it's in a box. God says, this far and no farther. And we trust that he's in control. When, when I used to run track, um, that was a lot of suffering. I don't know if any of you are, are runners, but I never liked track practice. It was always fun to run a race, but I never wanted to practice for the race, right? And so one of the things that the coaches did to help us uh, endure the suffering was they would use a stopwatch, right? There were limits put on our suffering, and they would say, we're going to do this run for five minutes, or you're going to do this run for this many meters, and then it's done. And that's kind of what's going on here with these prophecies. God is saying, this is going to happen. You're going to think it's the end of the world, but it's not really and we still look forward to the resurrection. We still look forward to God making all things right. Suffering is coming, but that suffering is not going to be ultimate. Jeremiah 29 is where we started this whole series. You remember that? Jeremiah 29 was this prophecy that Jeremiah gave to the people of God, and he said, this is how you should live during your exile. This is how you should make the most of your trouble. And Jeremiah 29 says this, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll visit you and I'll fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. That's beginning to happen now in the life of Daniel where we are in the book of Daniel. That 70 years is over and people are starting to move back. And God's saying, but there's other things that are gonna take place. Now look at Jeremiah, well, you don't need to flip to it, but I'll quote Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. We live in the paradox of that being true in our lives, just like it was true in the lives of the exiles. They'd seen their families murdered. They'd been forcibly removed to another culture. And God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for a future and a hope. No matter what you're going through, is what God is promising us as well. Obviously, the details of the circumstances are different in 600 BC than they are in the year 2020. But God promises us, you're going through difficulty, but I have bigger plans for you. This suffering has boundaries. This suffering that you're going through right now, and you feel like this suffering is all there is. God's saying, no, this is not all there is. There's more. There is a future and a hope. And if you don't hear anything else right now, I want you to hear that. That is what helps us as believers to be faithful. The relational suffering, the physical suffering, financial suffering, emotional suffering, whatever it is you're going through right now, when we hurt, it feels like it's the end of the world and it's all there is. God says there's more. There's more. There are boundaries around your suffering. There's more to come. So what do we do with our suffering as we look at this overwhelming amount of prophecy and God's promises that he's in charge and he's in control. What do we do? Three simple things, right? We grieve, honestly. We've seen that again and again in the book of Daniel. We grieve. We say, God, it hurts. 
God, can you make it stop? God, it hurts. We cry. We share that with the friend that we trust to not just immediately smack us with, hey, cheer up, God's in charge, right? (laughs) Find a friend that will actually cry with you and hold your hand for a minute. Share it with them. Share it with God who says he will wipe away every tear from your eye. We grieve. The second thing that we do is we pray. The Daniel 9 prayer, I love, I keep coming back to this, this is a great key verse of Daniel. Daniel said in uh, chapter 9, 18, we are not presenting our prayers before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. We pray by the mercies of God. God help us. God help us. And then what do we do? We endure. We endure. We persevere. We keep walking with God. We put one foot in front of the other, right? I think that song's gonna come out soon, right? Isn't that in a Christmas special? I think there's some Christmas special song about one foot in front of the other. Isn't that a Christmas song? Yeah. It's like Rudolph or something. I don't know. Push that out of your mind. We persevere. We keep going. We grieve. We're honest about it. God, this hurts. We pray. God, based on your mercy, not on my righteousness, will you move in my lifetime and through my life? And then we persevere. We keep going, trusting the suffering has boundaries that God's placed on it. We're not in charge of those boundaries. We want to be, right? We're like, okay, God, I'm going to schedule my suffering to end uh, tomorrow at noon, okay? And God may say, no, it might, it might be another month. It might be another year. We grieve, we pray, we endure. Okay, next point. We trust that resurrection is coming. And this is what we saw in chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1, at that time shall arise Michael. He's the great prince, the great angel warrior that oversees and protects Israel. He who has charge of your people, there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. So this is where we believe he's jumping way to the far future, to the end of the known reality as we see it. This is a trouble that's never been seen before. But at that time, your people shall be delivered everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So let me pause here for just a second. Christians traditionally believe in a double resurrection. And what's meant by that is a resurrection to eternal life and a resurrection to eternal shame or eternal death. Now that's difficult. Some Christians are like, that sounds too bad. So there's this theory called annihilationism, which, which is basically like hell is a fire, so you burn up and you're done. Um, the traditional view, I'm going to state the traditional view for you, which, which I hold to, is basically that human beings are eternal. Amen. That's how God made us. We are God-like, but we're not God. And so we're going to, we're going to exist. So there's this bodily resurrection unto either et- eternal terror or eternal life. And that's what Daniel is spelling out here in Daniel 12 too. Now, I don't think annihilations or annihilationists are crazy or evil for that theory. I'm just saying this is why the traditional theory is, is held to of eternal death, because people are eternal. Verse 3 says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, 
He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. Again, that prophetic prediction that keeps coming up again and again. Many think this is the three and a half years that we see so often in the book of Revelation as well. So for time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. So again, big prophetic idea. If you're one of those people that's just beginning to study these predictive prophecies of the end of the world, big idea. God gives near-term predictions. Hey, in 100 years, this thing's happening. And then he's like, but that's not quite the end of all things. There's this later end of all things. And that pattern holds pretty true to all of our prophecies. We see that in Matthew 24 and 25. We see that here in Daniel. So that's a help to making sense of these prophecies. That doesn't solve it all for us. It's still difficult stuff to study, but that's a help to make sense of it. Here, he's talking about the end of all things. And what happens at the end of all things? The resurrection. That is our hope. That's why you should memorize Romans chapter 8. That's why you should memorize 1 Corinthians 15. Because our resurrection is our hope. It's what makes Christians different at a funeral. At at a non-believer's funeral, there's generally just sadness because it's the end of everything. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that Christians grieve. We do grieve. We're sad when we lose someone, but it's not without hope. We have hope because of the resurrection Does the resurrection change the way you live? Does the resurrection change the way you think about death? Christians should grieve differently. I think I grabbed a picture of a casket just to lock it in your mind. As you face death, and that's been part of the weirdness of this pandemic, right? On the one hand, oh no, we're we're afraid of dying. On the other hand, well, I don't don't know anybody that's died. You know, so it's like this weird tension we live in of it's like close but far. Well, in reality, that's human life, right? Right? We're all going to face death, usually not when we've scheduled it. And the idea is if we believe in the resurrection, we have a hope that enables us to live fully in the here and now, not, not living in fear. Do we take precautions? Yeah, I try to eat right and I brush my teeth, right? We do these basic things. I wear a seatbelt when I drive my car, yet I don't live afraid of death. And that's the line that Christians walk. We take basic precautions, but we live with a a hope that resurrection is coming. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says it this way, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's the ultimate enemy. Remember, we've seen these visions of monsters. We see these political situations that are frustrating. We've just, well, we're still in the middle of a frustrating, bizarre political climate in our own country. It's easy to take our eyes off of God and his sovereignty and look down at the earthly kings and kingdoms and say, everything's falling apart. This is so terrible. The ultimate enemy is death itself. And Jesus has conquered that enemy for us. By dying on the cross, he took the punishment for our sins. By rising from the dead, he proved that he's defeated death once and for all. Paul says, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And then he goes on and says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The law convicts us of our sin. God's law shows us, like an x-ray, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. It doesn't fix the sin problem, though. Jesus fixes the sin problem. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, defeats sin for us. And so Paul gives us the application. Daniel says the resurrection is coming. Jesus shows us the resurrection is coming. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, So, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Remember earlier in chapter 11, we saw some of the people of God will be steadfast. What does that mean? Steadfast is not a common modern word we use. It basically means you can't be moved. You're going to stand your ground. You're going to plant your feet. You're going to plant your flag. You're going to dig in your heels and say, I'm not going to be moved off of this. But what is the this, right? (laughs) Like, what's the this that you're not going to be moved from? Well, Paul is saying, in context of 1 Corinthians 15, your ultimate hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. My hope is not in the political party that's in power. Do I care enough to vote and have friendly debates with my friends? Yes, but that's not where my hope lies. My hope is not in eating healthy food. Do I care? Do I try to live a healthy life? Yeah, but that's not where my hope is. My hope is not in a seatbelt. Do I wear a seatbelt? Sure, I wear a seatbelt. My hope is in Jesus. So that's the paradox we walk by. We we take basic precautions. We live according to the wisdom of the book of Proverbs, but we say, man, my hope is not in this life. It's not in the strength of my own flesh. My hope that I will not be moved from, my hope is in Jesus. And so I'm gonna be steadfast, immovable. You will not move me off of that. I am, uh, this sounds weird talking about myself, but I'm, I'm probably a friendlier than average person, I would say, right? But if you wanna see me get like angry and aggressive, it's when people try to substitute something else for Jesus. That's when I get defensive, I get territorial, I get upset. That's what we should fight over, right? There's no other salvation but Jesus. He's our only hope. He is where the resurrection comes from. So we've had in chapter 11, the people of God, some of them will be faithful. They'll be immovable and steadfast. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection, it says, what do you do with this resurrection? It makes you more steadfast. It makes you able to dig in on this hope. And you're going to then abound in the work of the Lord. You're going to serve the Lord. You're going to spend your time, instead of just trying to amass an empire for yourself, you're going to invest in other people, share the hope of Jesus with them. Colossians uses the same phraseology in Colossians 1.23. If you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Exact same language there. Same Greek words. Paul says, you know you have hope if you continue to hold on to Jesus. You can't be knocked off of that center. Are you steadfast? Are you immovable? Daniel promises us that we should be because of the hope of the resurrection. Last point, trust that your little life matters. Trust that your little life matters. Throughout this, the idea has been that we can trust God's plan. We trust that God's in control even though we struggle And so we can go to one of two extremes, right? One extreme is my life doesn't matter. The other extreme is I'm in total control, right? We try to take control and lead everything ourselves. But this book focuses so much on God's in control, and we're not, that we might lean towards the, okay, I give up. Let go and let God, just whatever, who cares? But our life matters. 
We'll see this in the Daniel text. Daniel 12, verse 8. I heard, but I didn't understand. And I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Right? Daniel's still a little confused. Peter talks about that. He says the prophets didn't always understand everything that was revealed to them. We see more now because of Jesus. So Daniel's a little confused. Verse 9, he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who awaits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Verse 13, but go your way till the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. He basically says, go live your life, man. Don't, don't worry about the details. You're not going to understand it all. That, that's the, the Dave McMurray paraphrase. Daniel, just, just do your thing, okay? Just play out the role that God has given you to play out. Live the life he's given you to live. One of the frameworks in the New Testament that helps us a lot with this, Romans 12 says, because of God's mercy, we're going to offer our lives as living sacrifices. That's, that's general, right? Jesus is good to me, so I'm going to live my life for others. But then it gives specifics. It says some of you are leaders, so lead. Some of you have gifts of mercy, so be merciful. And he goes on, he says, you have different gifts in the body of Christ. We're all different parts to play. Play your part well. Trust that your little life matters. Remember, again, Daniel saw the prophecy of Jeremiah come true and people going back to the temple in Jerusalem, and he wasn't a part of that. And again, we're not even told why. We can just assume it's because he's 85 years old, but we don't know all the details. God is saying, Daniel, your part is your part, and that's good and right. And the New Testament echoes that again and again. Your part, my part, that's our part. Our little life matters. J.R.R. Tolkien, I always want to say J.R.R.R.R. Tolkien, but anyway, he's a famous author. He wrote The Lord of the Rings, stuff that's been made in these uh, movies. He wrote The Hobbit. Great quote on trusting the plan and trusting God's plan is he says, um, you should never leave a live dragon out of your calculations when you're coming up with a plan, right? And so that's kind of lived out in the book of Daniel. But he wrote this book that was really helpful about understanding that our little life matters. It was a real short little book called Leaf by Niggle. Any of you ever heard of this book? Leaf by Niggle. It's about this painter who's painting this giant canvas. I have a picture of it there on the screen. He's painting this giant canvas, and he's spending all this time on one little leaf. And he keeps getting interrupted, and sometimes he's annoyed at the interruptions. Sometimes he's happy to serve his neighbor. And the difficulties of life keep him from bringing his painting to the full vision, the full dream of everything that he imagined and saw in his heart that it could be. To to restate it, um, the interruptions, the difficulties, the suffering of life keeps niggle and keeps you and I from making our little life all the great, beautiful, big stuff that we think it should or, or can be. It's really interesting in this story you see this one part of the story where after he dies, it's kind of confusing. I'm giving away the story, so sorry. Still, still read it anyway. But he's taken on this train to a heavenly unnamed place where to his surprise, 
the tree that he'd been painting that he never had time to finish during his lifetime, he sees that tree complete in the new heavens and the new earth. Here's a quote from the book. Before him stood the tree, his tree finished. If you could say that of a tree that was alive, its leaves were opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Nigel had so often felt or guessed and so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. He was referring to his art, but also to the result. But he was using that word gift quite literally. He went on looking at the tree. All the leaves he had ever labored at were there as he had imagined them, rather than as he had made them. Translation, they were even better than he could paint. And there were others that had only budded in his mind, and many that might have budded if only he had had time. Tim Keller, pastor that I I love to read, talks about this in his book about our work and our life counting. He has a book called Every Good Endeavor. And he says this, once or twice in your life, you may feel like you have finally gotten a leaf out, right? You may feel like, I actually got something done today. Have you ever had that day? Aren't those glorious days? Your spouse comes home, your roommate comes home, you're like, I succeeded in something today, right? It's glorious, it's wonderful. You might actually get a leaf out. Whatever your work, you need to know this. There really is a tree. Whatever you are seeking in your work, the city of justice and peace, the world of brilliance and beauty, the story, the order, the healing, it's there. There is a God, there is a future healed world that he will bring about. And your work is showing it in part to others. Your work is showing it in part to others. Your work will be only partially successful on your best days in bringing that world about. But inevitably, the whole tree that you seek, the beauty, harmony, justice, comfort, joy, and community will come to fruition. Whether you're a soldier fighting for justice, whether you're a teacher trying to educate young minds, whether you're a healthcare worker trying to heal bodies, you, you will see what you're working on now come to full fruition in the new heavens and the new earth. Keller says this, if you know all this, you won't be despondent because you can only get a leaf or two out in this life. You will work with satisfaction and joy. You will not be puffed up by success or devastated by setbacks. We work with whatever gifts we have to feed people, to heal people, to administrate, to serve We use those gifts to point the world to God's grace and peace. The story that we tell about a God who's given himself for us in Jesus completes that story in people's hearts. But we see the full fruition of it all when we come into the new heavens and the new earth. When we walk into the resurrection, we will then really know that our little life mattered. That God used us in his giant cosmic plan And so again, the ultimate hope is the resurrection. The ultimate hope is what Jesus is doing. We play our little part and we're working on our little leaf in our little corner of the cosmos, fighting evil, pushing back what is wrong with the world, but trusting that Jesus is gonna return and fix it all. And so we need to end, as we think about trusting God's plan, by remembering that Jesus is the embodiment of that plan. Our minds can get overwhelmed. I've felt a heaviness this week as I've been studying all this prophecy. There are so many details 
frankly, confusing at times. And what has comforted me is to come back to the plan is, is not just complicated doctrine. The plan is a person. So when Jesus was comforting his friends, Mary and Martha, when their brother died, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. It's Jesus. It's not just doctrine. It's not just words. Those are important. We study them. We, we want to get to know the prophecies and understand what Scripture says, but it's a person. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you pursue us by taking our sin upon your back, by dying in our place. But God, that's not where the story ends. You rose from the dead. You've conquered sin and death. You've proved that you are the king of the universe. You've proved that you are sovereign. You've put down the final enemy. So God, help us to play our part. Help us to trust the suffering we go through is limited and we can take heart because you've overcome the world. Help us to trust that seeing you face to face and having you wipe away every tear is what we look forward to in the resurrection. And God, help us to trust that our little life matters, that you use us, that, that we're not insignificant, but we're a part of your plan. Help us to play our role well and help us to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.